Hey, church, how are you today? It's awesome to be with you. Hey, I got a text from our lead teacher and vision caster, Randy Frazee. This came in yesterday. I just got to read it to you. It's, it's, he's really great about, like, sending you a text the day before you speak, encouraging you. He says, hey, Dano, tomorrow you launch one. That's the one campaign. He says, how are you feeling? He says, I was on a Zoom last night with, get this, all the church leaders from Hong Kong, Malaysia, Vietnam, Singapore, and Ghana. Everyone's doing this series, this uh, From the Gospel Luke, the Storyteller series, and the full program in, he writes, a gazillion different languages. How cool is that? It's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, so we're, in, we're launching this eight-week, one campaign where we're all together here, all Lenexa, all of our campuses, our online community with, like, Followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters from Ghana, from Malaysia. Uh, this started actually in 2018 in Hong Kong. We were, we're doing this in partnership with Faith Comes by Hearing with the One Campaign. And there were 300 churches at that point in time. And now it has spread all over the globe. And we're all together fixing our eyes on Jesus and actually leaning into his stories as found in the Gospel of Luke. It's kind of reminiscent of what Jesus said and what the Scripture said would always be the case that in eternity, in the kingdom of God, from throughout all ages, all of his followers from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, from every ethnicity would come together and in the picture that Revelation 7 casts, all wearing white robes, palm branches, and they're all saying salvation belongs to God by the blood of the Lamb. We're all in and we get a sense of that moment, which is incredibly cool. And... We've gotten a little foretaste of that kind of unity, that kind of oneness right here in our city of Kansas City. A little glimpse, a little taste of, of a different kingdom. <laughs> How many of you were at the world champion Kansas City Chiefs parade on Wednesday? Anybody there? Yeah? Was not there were not white and palm branches. It was a lot of red and bud lights. But other than that, <laughs> other than that, you get this sense of glimpse of wow. Is this a little bit what it might be like to everyone come around one thing and all the arguing and the bittering as the scriptures say, all the pain and the sorrow and the suffering, it's all gone. And we're just here collectively in this moment. Curious, how many of you did go to the parade? All right, or you watched? How many of you worked? Come on, no, 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 this is a day of celebration. I took uh, two of my three daughters, we went down there. It was me and a gaggle of uh, teenage girls in a minivan, put on the hard hat. We were there, baby, and uh, it, was, uh, it was really fun. And I'm sure, like, like you, you, uh, you have all sorts of reasons why you think the Chiefs won the 57th Super Bowl. You have your own analysis, right? You have your own theories. How many of you think that Somehow, by something you've done, it helped the Chiefs get over the hump and win. Because <laughs> we're just noticing, church attendance has gone up just a little bit, but you know, from each little playoff series. Uh, we're pretty convinced in the Diebel home that the reason we won was because of our Diebel home mascot, meet Ginger Joy Diebel. There she is. Yes, our Christmas Eve puppy. Doesn't she look good in red? And if you saw her from behind, she's wearing the 1-5, baby. She's, uh, she's like just, she's kind of like Mahomes, man. She's got spice. She's got spunk. 
in the, uh, in the words of Chris Berman, we can't stop her, we can only hope to contain her, is what, is what we're hoping to do. So, hey, let's pray together, let's pray together. So, Lord, today in this moment, in this time, we just, we just want to pause, we want to center ourselves and just say, you're welcome here. Here being in this space, throughout all of our um, gathering points online, Speedway, uh, North Sanctuary, South Sanctuary, uh, all the ways, God, to, to Ghana and back, to Malaysia and back, we just thank you that we believe there is one faith, one baptism, one Lord. So have your way with us here and now, we ask, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Get out. Get out. Out. Get out. This elderly lady, one hand holding a bag of groceries with a loaf of bread sticking out. In the other hand, this defiant fist as she's standing before a gate of militiamen brandishing AK-47s, uh, AK submachine guns, tanks, straps of ammunition across their young chests. Everyone else in this city street of Beirut, it's a ghost town. No one else is out there. These militia, this is during the Lebanese Civil War, they have butchered and brutalized their way block by block by block to commandeering the center of, of these quarters. And no one dare stand them down except for this woman who keeps shouting, get out, get out, get out. Every day she'd come out and stand in front of the gates that they were protecting. Get out, get out. Get out. And the crazy thing is that these guards, burly, you know, bray, you know, and they literally leaving a trail of carnage to get to this point. You'd think they would just have taken her out with one shot, but they didn't. They would just stand there and they're like, oh, dear woman, we're, we're, we're so sorry. It's going to be okay. Please don't shout. Please don't raise your voice. <laughs> Isn't that unbelievable? Why? Why? Kenneth Bailey, one of my favorite scholars of all time, now deceased, he was on house arrest. He was a visiting professor during this time. And he says, I'll never forget this woman. I'll never forget her, her courage, her bravery. In fact, he, he writes this in, in one of his books. He says this. Had any man in the quarter engaged in such an activity, he would have been shot at once. What is going on in this moment? You know, Jesus tells a very, actually, a very similar story about another woman, a woman who was a widow, and she went where she wasn't invited, where she didn't belong. She went to a court in front of a judge. Women weren't allowed in front of courts or in front of a judge. Their testimony wouldn't be allowed in the court of law. But she would go day after day and she would pound her fist and she would say before this judge, help me with my adversary. Help me with my adversary. Help me with my adversary. 
And any good respecting judge in this time in which Jesus is telling the story, you would expect him to say, who is taking advantage of you? Who is preying upon your vulnerabilities? Tell me, and we'll make this right, right here, right now. But the shock of the story, at least one of them, as Jesus tells it, is the judge does nothing. He turns her away. She comes back. He turns her away. She comes back. He turns her away. She comes back. It's a little bit like that old song. And the cat came back the very next day. And it just like goes on and on and on until finally, as Jesus tells the story, this judge did not fear God. This judge did not care about this woman. This judge had no shame. And yet finally he cries uncle and says, all right, I'm going to take what's being done against you and I'm going to make it right. Why? For his own self-interest. I mean, this is a, we don't know, Jesus doesn't tell or elaborate in the story, like, what's going on with this woman? She's being preyed upon, she's being taken advantage of, she is a widow, which is the most vulnerable in society, she clearly doesn't have somebody to advocate for her in court. I'm just curious, how many of you have aging parents? Have any of you watched or observed your parents being taken advantage of by a scam call or something online, or some sort of email. I mean, the fury within you, right? Yeah, this is diabolical. Who would take advantage of someone so vulnerable? That just comes straight from the pit of hell. Who would do that? Jesus is telling this kind of story. Now, why is he telling it? What's this story about? Is it about justice? Well, God is a God of justice. He wants wrong things to be made right. But it's not why he tells it, at least primarily so. Grab your West Side app. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8, 18, verse 1, and Jesus does some like, he tells us exactly what the story is about right up front as Luke captures it. Luke chapter 18, verse 1 says, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. This whole story Jesus tells is about two things, pray, keep praying, pray, 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 and, and don't give up, don't give up. Now... How many of you right now are just in a place in your life where you've been praying, 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 but you're about to give up? You're like, I just feel like anytime the words fall off my lips, they land on God's deaf ears. And now Jesus gives us a story, presumably to encourage us but I got to say, it just makes it more complex to me. Jesus, this is about prayer? Okay, so wait a minute. What am I supposed to make sense of this? That you are like the judge? You're capricious? You're narcissistic? You're completely self-consumed and you only move in your own self-interest? Is that, is that what I'm supposed to make of this? As the, as the judge goes on to say, literally, I'm, I better just like handle her case or less she might move from verbal attack literally to physical attack is how it seems in, as Jesus tells the story. God, are you like that? Are you only consumed in this like hedonistic way about yourself that you don't care about me and somehow I'm supposed to still pray? What's up with that? Well, this, my friends, is what we call a really good story. Story that stays with you, a story that disarms you, a story that you go, huh? A story that a little bit like when Ginger hears the high-pitched whistle as our little puppy, like, Arr! you know, like, where, where do I file this? What, what, what do I do with this? But I know for one thing, I can't shake it. And that's the power of a good story. Any of you story writers, like you, you write stories, 
Um, you are visual storytellers, screenwriters. You're an author of some nature. Come on, go ahead. I know there's a few of you. How many of you want to be aspiring ones? Come on, down here. Yes, that's right. So you know the power of a good story. Some of you have stories of origin from that your, your father or your mother used to tell you or your grandfather used to tell you, and they've stuck with you to this day. Stories are amazing. Let's just think about stories for a minute. Let's geek out. Number one, stories have this spiritual component. How do you tell about earthly things, Jesus says? How can I grasp the heavenly things for you in earthly terms? Well, guess what? He told 30 to 50 stories, depending by how you count. Like, how do you take the spiritual thing and actually make it material. Stories are also physical. This story Jesus says, he says, there was in a certain town, there was a judge. He places it in time, space, and matter where there's dust of, uh, on the ground and there's breath coming out of nostrils and there's, there's names and there's people and there's faces. He takes the spiritual and he marries it with a sense of physical. It's amazing. Now stories are also portable. They're portable, meaning they go with you. Here we are today, 2,000 years later, still telling the story of this stubborn widow who would not give up. And you have stories that you carry with you today that you'll never forget. I just, uh, I love the stories my dad used to tell, still does. And they, 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 they stayed in with me, and they're like yeast. As I grow older, they even make more and more sense to me. Stories are portable, they go with you. They're also portals into uh, into another world. The research on this is it's, it's called narrative transporting. It's just literally you are so consumed in a story that you're transported to another place. I've seen this in, um, like, I've seen this most dramatically in my wife. See, when we first started dating, she had this really impressive bookshelf of books like Russian novels and all sorts of classics, and I was really impressed. And we got married, and she reads teenage novels. Like dystopian ones, you know, stuff about zombies, whatever else. And in our first year of marriage, it really, like, freaked me out because she would get into this. Th oh, she also reads the Bible. But anyways, she would get into this, and, and I would say, hey, honey. She's, hey, honey. She, I mean, she's just, like, so locked in. I'm like, honey! Right? And she's like, huh, what? I mean, I literally had to pull her back from, you know, whatever it was, whatever werewolf was attacking whatever, you know, kind of person. I'm like, honey, like, like she was so transported. She was invited into a portal into a different time and a different space. Um, stories are also ancestral. They're ancestral, meaning they carry the story of your people. They're communal in the sense that they bring together the story of us as a people, whatever that community might be. Stories are also neural, neurological. So here's, a, here's kind of a fun fact about stories, is that if I were to give you a list of facts, those would pretty much land right up here in your executive center of your brain, prefrontal cortex. But if I were to tell you a story, it essentially takes over your whole brain, the emotion center, the executive center. It has this ability to transcend all the parts of your brain. This is why it's portal. Right, It has the ability to kind of like take over your, your whole brain. And it, what, what happens when a story is told, there's this what's called active anticipation where you literally are like, well, who done it? How come? Why not? Where'd this go? Uh, they, they missed this part. How did we like? And, and you're literally so into the story, you're trying to anticipate the outcome. 
And it's also why I work with communicators, quite frankly, and we talk about how do you speak to an com- uh, audience online? And um, my, my quick high level is, don't give them points, don't give them facts. If you're preaching, don't give them the Greek. I mean, slide it all in, but tell a story. Why? Because on the other end of the camera, on the other end, they're probably in the living room, and the dog is puking, the baby is pooped, right? There's probably some leak in, in the kitchen. There's chaos going on the other side. You want to get your three points established? Good luck. If you want to get them to shut up, tell a story. And everyone leans in. And how do I know this is true? What happened when there were commercials during the Super Bowl? Shh. I mean, it wasn't like the Chiefs were driving, you know, it's third and long. No, no, there's like some, some progressive commercial you want to listen to. And that's because those even writing those commercials, they know the power of story. They're not just trying to convey information. They're wanting to tell a story that, that grabs you and brings you in. There's also this thing called speaker listening coupling. And neural coupling, which is to say, as I'm telling you a story from memory, you're drawing a similar memory, and it's like this brain echo that's occurring. It's just incredible. Like the power of story. It's also so personal. So I don't say when I meet somebody, hey, tell me the facts on you. Give me the vitals. Give me the bullet points. What do I say? Hey, man, tell me your story. Because it's so meaningful. And lastly... Stories are disruptive. They should be. Good stories should be. If you can predict the outcome, it's not worth reading or watching, isn't it? And so now think about this for a moment. I mean, all this about story. Jesus comes to this earth, and he has the eternal truth to bear. He has all that's true in heaven. He wants to bring it and distill it down so that we can not only understand it, but so that we can embody it. And what does he do? As the Lord of all creation, as the Lord who knows about narrative transporting, as the Lord who knows about active anticipation, as the Lord who knows about speaker listening, neural coupling, as the one who designed us and said, now how could they fully live this, receive this, embody this? I know, I'll talk about pearls, and I'll talk about kings going to war, and I'll talk about a business person setting forth his business plans on a construction project. And I'll tell a story about a son who brings shame and dishonor to his father, but a father who embarrasses himself to be reunited with his son to the shock and actually the horror of everyone in the community. And I'll, I'll tell a story about a corrupt businessman, Jesus says, who does a bunch of backdoor deals to make friends. And somehow Jesus makes him out to be the hero. And Jesus says, and I'll tell a story about the most despised enemy and I'll call him good. And he'll do everything right in the story. And it will completely just turn over the apple cart on everybody. It would be like me going to a Republican convention and telling the story about the most Christ-like Democrat. Or me going to a Democrat convention and telling a story about the most Christ-like Republican. Or me telling a story about the good Muslim who was more Christ-like than the Christian. Jesus told stories that were ancestral and communal and they neurologically engaged your brain and they were personal and they were disruptive and how smart and genius of him as the great storyteller. To say, how do I take all of this and bring it to you here? And I don't think Jesus gets enough credit 
for how brilliant that is. How many of you grew up in a church setting where, as a kid, you joined the adult service on the front end for a little, little music, and then story time, right? Quite a few of us. And so you'd come down to the front, most of us would, and the pastor would, like, sit down and kind of, you know, be down on stage with the kids, and he would typically tell a story from the Bible, oftentimes a Jesus story. Then we pray over the kids, We'd send them out, and in the words of my friend, then we get down to the serious business of Paul. As if Jesus is, and his stories, well, they're, ni they're nice, they're light, they're kind of fluffy and the whole thing. Um, but when we really want to get into the deep, you know, spiritual stuff, we go to Paul or we go to other places in the Bible and we leave or jettison Jesus behind. Not so may it never be. The Lord of all creation chose to tell stories 30 to 50 times because he knew exactly what he was doing. They're not to be missed nor trifled with. Kenneth Bailey would, would say this. I just love this quote. He says, the popular perception of Jesus is that of a village rustic creating folk tales for fishermen and farmers. But when examined with care, his parables are serious theology. And Jesus emerges as an astute theologian. I just want to share four things that, as I've dug into the story, just things that I love, things that I think as a storyteller, he is doing some really sweet ninja moves uh, in his craft as a storyteller. The first thing is he is actually leveraging what's called a light to heavy principle. So to the question like, God, are you like this judge, unjust, narcissistic, all those things? No, Jesus is telling a story that will so get people's attention because why? It's absurd. Nowhere in that culture would there ever be at least so blatantly a judge that was only cared about themselves. Sometimes that judge would act like they cared uh, and then did their own thing, but nobody would be that ridiculously self-consumed. Jesus is sharing something that would almost make people go, oh, that's amazing, like, why, why would that happen? That would never happen. To make a point, to move from the light, oh, wow, that, that, to, oh, wow. The second thing, that the great storyteller is doing is he is leveraging this motif called how much more. You get a sense of it here in Luke chapter 18 when Jesus wraps up, tells the story, and then he makes kind of his point, lands his point, says, and the Lord said, this is verse six, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You don't see the words exactly technically here, but the motif that Jesus is bringing in is like when he says, hey, wait a minute, you ever looked at the lilies of the field? How about uh, the birds of the air? Now, they don't worry about whether they're going to get fed or have clothes to wear. So how much more? How much more valuable are you than they? The how much more principle is a way of leveraging contrast. 
the contrast of, hey, look, if an unjust judge is going to do this, even though he's completely narcissistic, right, even though he's only going to move it in his own self-interest, even though he's all just from self-preservation, he finally relents and, and cries out, uncle, how much more a God who at his core is justice, at his core is righteousness, at, at his very core loves you to no end, how much more then should you keep praying? Should you never give up? See what he's doing there? This beautiful sense, moving light to heavy, moving from how much more, if this, then that. The third thing that he does is he chooses the most unlikely of heroes, one who's not even allowed in a court of law, whose testimony would not even be admitted, who's the most vulnerable person in society, has no one to advocate for them, and yet they have this courage this woman, this widow has this courage to say, I don't care. I'm going to just keep coming back. And actually, Kenneth Bailey, from his own house arrest during that civil war in Lebanon, he said, you know, um, I couldn't go out and get groceries. I couldn't go out and get supplies. We were under lock and key for months. But my wife and daughters could. And they were the most courageous. They were able to do things that we were not as men. And Jesus calls upon one of the undervalued in society, namely a woman, and he makes her the hero. He does that time and time again, whether it's the Samaritan, whether it's a fisherman, whether it's a woman. The last thing that I, I had not seen this, but to me it's, it's pretty timely, is that Jesus is comforting the most vulnerable, which is actually his church in the story. I didn't see this until it was pointed out to me. At verse 18, it says, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should never give up and should always pray. So what's happening here? What's happening is we're at the 18th chapter. This, this story, as Luke is recording it, is almost over. And what's about to turn is a lot of darkness before there's light. Another scholar, Arlen Huntgren, he offers this perspective. I think it's important. He says this. Soon in the story, Jesus and his disciples, they'll be in Jerusalem. Now that could mean disaster, even death. It could mean disaster and death for Jesus and for his followers. But Within such perilous times, why is Jesus telling this story? Because one should not lose heart. God will not only care for his own, even vindicate them. Therefore, the disciples should persist in prayer and faith. And when I think about the power of a story, how you can't shake it, how it's portable and it's a portal and how it lights up every part of your brain. I can just imagine how the story of a widow that Jesus tells near the end of his life on earth, I can just see how it stayed with James, Peter, John, Matthew, Thaddeus, and the like. Such that when they're in the darkness, in this garden filled with olive trees called the Garden of Gethsemane, and they hear the cadence of guards marching, and they see in the distance bouncing torchlight coming in their direction. I just imagine one leaning to the other and saying, remember the widow. And as Jesus was taken away and brought into the courtyard and before Pilate and before Herod 
and he was flogged and he was just beaten to a pulp beyond all recognition. I can just imagine this story coming up to them in their most vulnerable moment. Remember the widow. And as Jesus hung on the cross and he breathed his last breath and he gave up his spirit, his followers sitting beneath, looking up as the sky goes dark, saying to one another, we should never give up. We should always pray. Remember the widow. And as Jesus is raised from the dead and he ascends into the heavenly realm and they watch him go, I can just imagine they're going, we don't know what's happening. He's gone. But remember, we should never give up. We should always pray. Like, remember the widow. And as this uprising of Jesus' followers, as they, as they start to tell one who tells another and, and lives begin to change, it becomes a real threat to the, to the local religious establishment such that they want to snuff it out. And so they literally put a, a, a death mark on the followers of Jesus. And they go and hunt and search house by house, door by door. And as they're hiding, as they're scattering, as they're fleeing to other cities, you can just imagine them hiding under tables, behind doors saying, remember the widow, never give up, always pray. And as 200 years pass and as the church continues to rise and to, to overcome and as Jesus, by the power of his spirit, begins to grow, there's an emperor named Nero who wants to snuff out Christianity forever and they're hiding in caves. They're in catacombs and they can only see one another's faces by torchlight themselves and you can just imagine this story is portable. The story is a portal into their deepest hearts and they say, remember the widow and I think about today Christ followers from all over the globe in Syria and the Middle East and Central and Latin America and, and those in India who are experiencing similar persecution today. This story lives on. The call of Jesus to always pray, to never give up. And I wonder if they're saying to themselves because they have the story too. Remember the widow. Remember the widow. And I think about us here in our context. Think about us as a church continually, some by our own fault, some by just the, the, the resistance coming up against us where we feel like we've fallen out of favor within our culture. And I just wanna say, man, never give up. Continue to pray. Remember the widow. When you have to explain something to your five or six year old that you never in your wildest imagined thought you'd have to explain because they brought something home from school. I just want to say to you, never give up. Always pray and remember the widow. If you today feel like you, you're waiting on a diagnosis from the doctor, if you've been handed divorce papers, if your son or daughter has left the faith, if you feel alone and forgotten and you're wondering, does your life matter? I say to you, remember the widow. Always pray and never give up. If you've lost your job, if your business is in peril, if you're struggling with infertility, if you're waiting on adoption, if you've been falsely accused, if you've been racially profiled, if you've been rightfully accused and you've served your time, but you're wondering, will anyone take a chance on you? If you're in high school, 
and you just feel like everything is working against you and you don't know how do I stand in this place with my faith, with conviction and authenticity, I say to you, remember the widow. Always pray, never give up. In every circumstance, in every situation, in every trial, in every suffering, always pray, never give up and remember the widow.